All right, 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 11. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new ark with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because, because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Let's pray again as we come to reflect on this part of God's word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we ask that you give us insight. Please shape our hearts, shape our minds, that we would know you better, that we would love you more and that we would respond to you as you call us to. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just going to remove um, Ian Dingwall, Tricia Frederick, and Sam Mills uh, from the lectern. Actually, you're wondering who you are. There, there you are. So I'll be distracted by it the whole time. Um, well, it, uh, have I got to remind you? I do. It's been a disturbing week this uh, week for religious freedom in Australia, uh, with the forced resignation of this man, Andrew Th- Th- Thorburn, um, the short-lived CEO of the Essendon Football Club in Victoria. Um, who's heard about this story? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's gone wide. Um, who was forced to resign after one day in the job when the club decided that the conservative Christian values which his church held could not be tolerated by the club. In short, he couldn't be a Christian and the CEO of the Essendon Football Club. So he resigned. Uh, of course, the usual suspects, such as Victorian uh, Premier Daniel Andrews, was quick to label Thorburn's church's conservative Christian views as, quote, absolutely appalling, hatred and bigotry. Comments that are a little, uh, are more than a little ironic. Uh, but it is a disturbing illustration of the rising intolerance in our culture, of a commitment to, to my own position and the intolerance of someone whose position differs to my own. And it seems that the one whose position is most intolerable is, in fact, God. I think what I think, and who is God to think differently? God, it seems, is supposed to be answerable to us. Which is, as you think about it, I guess really is at the heart of the human condition, which the Bible calls sin. 
a commitment to, to me, to myself, to my own position, my thoughts, my opinions, and a resistance to, to God, a questioning of him. Now, perhaps we see it quite blatantly with the, the intolerance towards a Christian football club CEO. But I wonder if the same bent towards ourselves, towards self, and the same kind of denial or questioning of God, I wonder if that's actually more present in our own hearts and lives than perhaps we like to think. See, what is our attitude toward God? Is he answerable to us or are we answerable to him? Today's passage uh, may uh, cause us to reflect on how we regard God. I hope that will be the case, that uh, to ask, well, do we take him seriously? Um, perhaps we don't dismiss him or reject him outright. I take that as probably the, the case. The fact that you're here is, is testimony to that. But is our attitude towards God, is it a little bit casual? I hope this part of God's word will help us to reflect on that. Now, at first glance, as uh, we uh, read this passage, we might think, well, this is a little bit strange. This is a bit obscure. We've got the, uh, the movement of this ark of God from this backwater of Israel, this place called Baalah, uh, moving it from there to Jerusalem. It's a bit strange. Maybe we think it's, it's a bit disturbing, really, with this poor guy, Uzzah, who's been struck down after he takes hold of the ark. But actually, this is what we have before us is actually a highly significant moment for the new king of Israel. It's a highly significant moment for the nation of Israel. We read uh, two weeks ago, the beginning of chapter 5, how David had finally become king over all of Israel. Uh, then last week, the passage that uh, Oliver preached, we saw that uh, David conquered Jerusalem and defeated the Philistines because the Lord God was with him. God is establishing David's kingship over Israel. And so here in chapter 6, David acts to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, to bring the ark to the capital, the centre of the nation of Israel. This is a big deal. Uh, it's such a big deal that, as verse 1 says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. And notice the word there again. I think this is harking back to the last time that Israel were gathered, at the beginning of chapter 5, where, where all Israel gathered to make David king. This is an event of, of similar magnitude and significance. And notice that he brought together all the able young men of Israel. You might have an ESV translation says chosen men. These are the, the warriors, the, the best soldiers, the, we might say the elite forces. And you hear that 30,000 of them brought together. We're expecting a, a great battle. And I think especially when you hear that number, 30,000, it's a significant number because that was the number of Israelite soldiers who were slaughtered on a previous occasion when the Ark of God was moved when it was captured by the Philistines back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And I wonder if that detail is included there to, to remind us of that event. So 30,000 chosen men of Israel gathered by David. But it's not for a battle. They're gathered to bring the Ark of God to Jerusalem. Why is that so significant? I mean, why does it warrant this, this gathering of 30,000 chosen men from all Israel? Well, it's because of what the ark is, or really what the ark represents. Uh, the ark was a, uh, a wooden box covered in gold. Here's a replica of it. 
was approximately 1.3 metres, it's probably about that, about that long, by 80 centimetres wide by 80 centimetres high. It was constructed according to God's uh, detailed instructions that he gave to his people in the, in the days of Moses. And it was to signify and, and symbolically remind Israel of the presence of God, that God was present with his people. And notice verse 2, it was called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty. God's name, the Lord. Now notice there, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, where you see that in the Bibles, that's God's personal name. Um, Yahweh is, is our best, um, uh, best guess at how it was pronounced. So God's name, Yahweh, that reveals who he is. I mean, that's, that's what a name does. That's how names work. If you meet someone new, one of the first things you're going to do is tell them your name. You reveal to them your name so that they might know you. God's name is tied to the, the revelation of who he is. Uh, you might be familiar with uh, the account in Exodus 34 where, where Moses wanted to see God's glory. And what did the Lord do? Well, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming his name. He said, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is God's revelation of who he is, of his, of his glory, the goodness of his character. And it's tied to his name. Uh, secondly, though, his name is about his reputation, his, his character and his actions. The Ark of, of God, or is also called the Ark of the Covenant, was a reminder of God's character, of, of his reputation, of, of the covenant that he had made with his people Israel. So God's name is about revelation. Secondly, it's about his reputation. And thirdly, the ark represents the rulership of God over Israel. Notice there again in verse 2, it says, The name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The one who's enthroned is the king. And the ark of God reminds Israel that Yahweh is the king over them. So this golden, gold-covered wooden box, this ark of God, represented the presence of, of God with his people, represented his revelation to them, his reputation as the covenant-keeping God, and his rulership of them as their king. I hope you can see that the significance of this gold-covered wooden box, which for some 70 years from before the reign of Saul had been largely absent from the life of Israel. It had been stowed away at the house of Abinadab in uh, this place called Baalah, also known as, um, as Kiriath-Jerim, and it appears to have been largely forgotten. But here, as David becomes king over all of Israel, he wants to change that. He wants to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, to the capital of the nation. He, the revelation, the reputation, the, the rulership of God was to be at the heart and the centre of the nation of Israel, of God's people. It's a significant moment for David and for Israel and that warrants this great procession of 30,000 young men of Israel. Well, in verse 3, we're then given the details of the, the logistics of moving the ark 
It says there, verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the, the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. A lot of details given there, isn't it? As to how they're, they're transporting this ark from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, uh, up to Jerusalem. Why are we given all this detail? I think we're meant to remember the account of last time that the ark of God was, was moved. Uh, I think the writer of 2 Samuel is uh, assuming that us as readers of 2 Samuel have, have read 1 Samuel and we'd be familiar that we, back in, in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel where the Philistines, Israel's enemies, what do they do? They placed the ark of God on a new cart and they sent it back to Israel where it, it ended up at the house of Abinadab which was on the hills. The same phrase that's used back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So these details are, are included here, I think, to remind us of that event. And we're to think, well, is this going to be a repeat of it? Or is this going to be a reversal of it? At any rate, if we know the instructions that God gave his people about how the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved, we ought to be feeling pretty nervous at this point because this is actually pretty dodgy. See, God gave his people, Israel, some detailed instructions about the ark. Uh, in short, you could summarise it as no looking, no touching, and no carts. Uh, firstly, no, no looking. The ark was to be covered. Uh, Numbers chapter 4, verse 5 says, When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it over the Ark of the Covenant law. Then they're to cover the curtain with a durable leather, spread a cloth of solid blue over it and put the poles in place. There's all preparation to it being moved. It wasn't to be looked on by just anyone. Uh, They weren't to touch the Ark of God. They were to carry the Ark by using these long poles that were inserted into rings on the sides of the Ark. Numbers 4 verse 15 says, After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites, they were from the, the tribe of, nation, uh, of, of the, um, the Levites, only, only, then, um, only then are they to come and do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The warning is pretty clear. No touching. Thirdly, no carts. Um, There were carts that were to be used by the Levites, but not for moving the ark. So Numbers 7, verse 6 says, So Moses took the carts and oxen and gave them to the Levites. He gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites. That's one part of the tribe of Levi, as their work required. He gave four carts and eight oxen to the Merites, as their work required. They were all under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. But Moses, notice, did not give any of the Kohathites did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. Now, with that background in mind, when we read that they set the Ark of God on a new cart, and then it's repeated on a new cart. Um, on, on, sorry, on, uh, lost my spot. Here. End of end of verse four. The new cart with the Ark of God on it. When we read that, I think we're meant to feel pretty nervous. This was at best revealing a rather casual attitude to God and his word. But the people were seemingly oblivious to this danger. 
that they were celebrating. Verse 5, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums and cymbals. This was quite a party. What, what a cacophony was going on. David, 30,000 young men and all Israel celebrating with all their might. The party was going down at Abinadab's house that day. But that all changed when they reached the threshing floor of Nacon. Verse 6, when they, reached, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. What are we to make of this? I mean, this is a disturbing scene. There lies Uzzah, dead beside the ark of God. And you might think, well, hang on, I mean, what should Uzzah have done? Should he have just kind of let the, the ark be tumbled off the side of the cart? Why did God act in this way? Perhaps what's most disturbing is, for us, that is, is that the writer doesn't give much explanation as to why God did this, other than to say that it was because of Uzzah's irreverent act or literally as the ESV says because of his error well which error exactly was it was it touching it was it having on the car what what's, what we may struggle with the lack of explanation here but I think we need to remember that in the end God is not answerable to us we are answerable to him he is the Lord. He is the Lord God Almighty whose, whose revelation, whose reputation, whose rulership is, is above and beyond us. And, and he's not obliged to, to win our approval. I think how we respond to this incident is actually a good indication of whether or not we believe that. Do, do we have a kind of casual attitude to God that domesticates him and expects him to fit in with what we think, how we reckon things should go. I think it's a good reminder that we, we can't domesticate God. He is powerful. He is holy. As we reflect on our response to, to this incident uh, and, and the minimal explanation is given, we are given the response of one person, of David. Notice there verse 8. It says, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David is angry. Notice it's not against the Lord, uh, as the Lord's anger had burned against Uzzah. No, David is angry because of the Lord's wrath. Or literally because of the Lord's breaking out, which had broken out against Uzzah. Um, you might see a footnote in your Bible, Perez just means breaking out. There's a lot of breaking out going on here. The, the Lord's breaking out had broken out against Uzzah at, at this place that got called breaking out against Uzzah. Now, in the previous chapter, the Lord had broken out against the Philistines. And David was, was pretty happy about that. Back in chapter 5, verse 20, it says, So David uh, went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. The enemy, that is. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perizim, which means the Lord who breaks out. David's glad to have the Lord breaking out against his enemies. 
But this breaking out against Uzzah, he doesn't like it. He's angry. And secondly, he's afraid. Verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. David abandoned his mission, or at least for now. We'll see next week here, part two, the second attempt. But for now, he abandons it and he concludes that, well, he and the ark of God can't can't be together after all. He sees this, this outbreak of the holy wrath of God and his response is to well, somewhat understandably, to distance himself. Instead of taking the ark of the Lord to be with him, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, someone from the Philistine city of Gath. But then we see, there in the house of Obed-Edom, that God is not only a holy God, he is a holy God to be feared, but he's also a good God to be rejoiced in. We read verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. The presence of the Lord brings blessing. He's holy, but he's also good. In the children's fantasy book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, who's read Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe? Oh, it's good to see. It's, it's such a great book. I was actually thinking, I, I've got to read the series again. C.S. Lewis, Lewis portrays Jesus as Aslan, the, the lion. And early on in the book, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are describing Aslan to the children. Uh, Mrs. Beaver says, If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And so the children ask, Well, is he safe mr beaver replies safe who who said anything about safe of course he isn't safe but he's good i think that's what we see here in 2 samuel 6 god is not safe but he's good he brings blessing to his people But he's not to be dismissed. He's not to be treated lightly. Uh, Psalm 2, that great psalm uh, early on in the uh, the book of Psalm, it speaks of the Lord's rule over this world. And it warns warns kings and rulers and, and anyone who would set themselves up against the Lord and against his king. It says in verse 11, Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. It's a great phrase that celebrate with trembling or rejoice with trembling. The Lord is, is not safe. He's not domesticated. It's right to tremble, but he is good. He brings blessing and so rejoice. Now, friends, if that was true for ancient Israel, how much more true is that for us, this side of the coming of Jesus, the one who is the fulfillment of the ark of God, the one who perfectly reveals God to us, who shows us God's glory, the fullness of his grace and truth, the one who is enthroned 
as Lord and King over all creation. Jesus is not safe. As the Apostle John, who had this terrifyingly glorious vision of Jesus, which he recorded in Revelation, in Revelation 1, he, he writes his response to seeing this vision of Jesus. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus is not safe, but he is immensely and profoundly good. As John continues, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, the living one, is profoundly good in that he died. He died. He gave up his life for you and for me. He did that in order to take upon himself the wrath of God for the way that we have invoked, uh, the, the, sorry, the wrath of God that, that we have invoked by all our thoughtlessness, our carelessness, our acts of indifference, of arrogance, of defiance against God. See, we are no better than Uzzah or David, and yet we are even more blessed than Obed-Edom. Because we have the presence of the fulfillment of the ark with us. Through Jesus, we are blessed with forgiveness. We are blessed with life now and forever. So we have more reason to celebrate than David and all Israel had with their castanets and harps and timbrels and cymbals. We have the Lord Jesus. We have forgiveness. We have life. We have eternal blessing. So friends, I want to say, rest in that knowledge and rejoice in him. But rejoice with trembling. What is your attitude towards God? Maybe some here this evening, um, your attitude has been one of defiance or maybe apathy. Maybe for others it's been one of somewhat taking him for granted. If that's the case, I want to say, be warned. He is God, and we are not. He's not answerable to us, we are answerable to him. But all of us ought to consider our attitude toward God. And I pray that we would all rejoice, because Jesus is with us by his Spirit. He has given us life and forgiveness and blessing but may we rejoice with trembling. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, Lord God, you are Lord and God over this world. You are Lord and God over each of us, and you are holy and righteous and just. Our Father, as we come before you, we ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which we've not regarded you as we ought. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness, for the life, the blessing that you've given us in Jesus. We ask that you would teach us to rejoice in this blessing and to do so with hearts that, that also tremble before you as our Lord, as our God. We pray that we would, we would honour you as God this day and in the days ahead. 
And we ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.